Wow. <laughs> Isn't that amazing that we get to be together after three years? We've moved from screen to screen to face to face and side by side, worshiping God together. It is a miracle of kindness. Let's just applaud God's goodness one more time. I'd love to begin this uh, talk by inviting you to read Philippians chapter 2 from verse 1 to 18. It's a lengthy passage. We know that the Word of God is over us, but I'm inviting you to come under the Word together with me and to open your all gates as you consider the magnificence of Jesus Christ and all that He represents in this most mag magnificent passage and how that revelation of who Jesus is, how it instructs us to live. And so, if you've got a Bible or you want to look at the screen, uh, but let's read it out loud together. Wouldn't that be fun? Paul says we should give ourselves to the public reading of the Scriptures. So, one, two, three. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even as I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad 
and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Father, we thank you for your most holy word. We thank you for this beautiful description of the humiliation of Christ all the way to the cross and the exaltation of Jesus to be the Lord of glory. And before that, Lord, we just humble ourselves. We look at that. We say, God, what God is this that He would lay aside majesty to break into history, to live the life, the prototype life for all His followers, to invite us to become a certain kind of person, people, community, as He becomes the master template, the ultimate role model of all that we call to be in this life. Lord, we sense Your your ravishing and jealous love over us. We thank you that you're moving toward us in tenderness and personal care and corporate care. We thank you that you're not backing off, you're moving in. We want to open wide our lives, our hearts, our churches, our movement to this fresh, loving work of Jesus. For his glory, for his name's sake. Amen. Humbly onwards captures a fresh call for followers of Jesus and local churches, movements, any public benefit organization that calls themselves by the name of Christ to reclaim and embrace the implications of the gospel. to embrace faithful leadership in a two-frontier mission. When a movement like ours goes through what it's gone through in the last two years, we are candidates for a deeper work of God. And if you're still catching up to that reality, I just want to know, I am front and central to that. My life has never felt like, uh, well, I've never felt as much as uh, my own personal need for this deeper working of God in my own life. One of my favorite uh, 80-plus leaders in the world uh, is Gordon MacDonald. And in the early 2000s, he wrote a book, and it was renewed in around about 2012, uh, a book entitled uh, Building Below the Waterline, subtitled Shoring Up the Foundations of Leadership. And my wife was having a read of this this year and shared this illustration with me about the Brooklyn Bridge, which kind of captures the need for a deeper dive of God into the hearts of leaders. See, the Brooklyn Bridge took 13 years to build, but for three years, nobody knew that anything was going on because all the work was happening under the water. Now, you really sharp people don't read into that, that I'm suggesting you've got to get all your foundations perfect before you can be involved in mission. 
I'm just saying, a mission is going to become terribly unplugged and uh, will develop fault lines if we don't have the foundations necessary. And basically, uh, McDonald is making the case that too many ministries, as an 80-year-old, he's looking around the world, he's looking at the narratives, sad narratives that we are witnesses to, and we don't want to get into failure porn and having, you know, being judgmental to everyone else. I think we want to just look at ourselves and say, God, what do you want to do in us? And uh, he's made the case that too many large ministries and large churches... Is that my eyes or yours, El? Too many large churches and uh, ministries fail because they have got these large structures, but the inner life can't support it. And it's just a matter of time between the, before it becomes a house of God cards and comes tumbling down. So I'm inviting us to consider what is this deeper work of God. And essentially, I'm wanting to make a case for two frontiers of the gospel, and that the work of the Holy Spirit in our generation, in our time, and in our movement, I would love us to be courageous enough to say, we are marking this day, and that's this season that we're in, to be a people that are not just committed to the outer frontier of going to the outermost parts of the world as a church planning movement, wanting to make Jesus famous in regions beyond, as much as that is something that we mandated to do, we want to be a people that intentionally, in this moment in history, we open the door of our hearts to say, Lord, we're looking for a deeper work of your grace in us as leaders. We're looking for the gospel to go deeper in our own lives, in our marriages, in our homes, in our churches, in, in everything that we're involved in. We're wanting to say, this inner part of our lives is open to you. We want for a fullness on the inside that leads to a fulfillment on the outside in the world in a way that that tension is more divinely choreographed. So I want to focus firstly on this inner frontier. Notice the words of Paul from verse 12 in the passage we read, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, trembling for it is God who is at work in you. Paul puts this emphasis on divine activity on the inside, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do uh, and to work for His good pleasure. Feels like God is getting our attention and He's saying, uh, I want to, and there are numbers of things in the passage where He says, I'm at work in you, but notice what He's done. He's just held up the template of Jesus Christ. And in the person of Jesus, we see this ocean of perfection. But of all the things that are, that are held up in Jesus is this, is this attribute of His humility. And folk, if ever there was a time in the, in the history of the church in my lifetime, I don't think there's been a, a greater need for us to take a deep dive about what does it mean to, to, to share in the humility 
of Christ. And as we learn to do that, what might change in the way we live and what might change in the way we do church and what might change in the way we build relationships and what might change in the way we engage with the world ultimately and what might change in the way we partner together and what might change in the realm of humility and generosity and all the other facets of kingdom living. And so we don't have time to to get into everything in the passage. But I want to put my finger on some of the things that I've witnessed. They're mentioned in the passages, some are not. But they're things that I sense the Lord warning us about as He's working in us. He tells us to do nothing from selfish ambition but vacancy, but in humility. It's like this call to humility. And so the first thing I sense, God arresting in our hearts, He's resting the drift away from humility. The drift from humility toward, and Paul mentions it, pride and conceit and selfish ambition, the temptation to build ministries and churches, to build towers in our own name. Things that reflect our success. And folks, success will try us like failure never will. Most of the failure we're seeing in church leadership is not because those churches or movements or ministries were not successful. They had fault lines below the water. And folk, they make it very clear that we do not have a leadership crisis, we have a discipleship crisis. Our vision to become a certain kind of person that increasingly resembles the person of Jesus Christ is what's on the table before us. My friends, Jesus, as Alan mentioned earlier in Matthew 11, puts humility right at the center. Just think about it. It's really crazy. Of all the things that Jesus could have called us to learn from Him, His curriculum for our hearts, His curriculum toward restfulness. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Drum solo. For I am humble and gentle of heart. I'm going to say this is the, often I feel this is where God starts to arrest stuff in my own heart. I went through a season 26 years ago, one year before we entered the common ground season. I had six months of being under the firm hand of God, getting to the root of stuff in my heart. And so much of it was an absence of this grace of humility. And I had to... uh, Raise a white flag. I had to stop uh, resisting this deeper work. I had to say, God, I need you to help me with this stuff. And of course, Paul picks up on that priority as well. He says, after having taught all the indicative truths of, uh, of the gospel in Ephesians 1 through to 3, chapter 4 All the indicative truths, all the blessings, everything we have in Christ in those first three chapters. Then in chapter 4, he's calling us to walk worthy of the vocation or the calling we've received. First imperative, be completely humble and gentle. It's like Paul and Jesus had had some heavenly conversations. He knew. And I want to suggest to you that these verses anticipate our moment in history. Anticipate what we've gone through. Be completely humble and gentle. Have you thought about it? Why completely? Because we never arrive. We're doing life 
the battles we're involved in. We don't graduate until that day. Leadership, sanctification, discipleship, workings in our heart is something we need to contend with till the day Jesus returns. And I want to put it to you, so many of the things that go wrong. Here we are. I want to just give it to you. After four decades of ministry, I don't know an issue that has gone wrong in a ministry or a church or a marriage that wasn't first rooted in losing something of this humility and gentleness. You put some of the stuff that you've been a witness to and go back. Don't look at the sins. Look at what's underneath all of that, and you'll find a heart that is not fully surrendered to Jesus. Most of our problems are discipleship issues. We're not following Jesus in the way that we are gobsmacked and stunned and awed by who He is. God is not looking for wonderful churches. He's looking for wonder-filled churches. He's not looking for awesome churches. He's looking for awestruck churches where our revelation of who Jesus is informs the curriculum for becoming a certain kind of person on the inside. Second thing God is arresting is the drip from leadership as sacrificial love toward entitlement. It's a big mark of celebrity leadership, and I don't want to pick on anybody, but what happens, celebrity leadership is, is, is just characterized by pr privilege and a different set of rules that apply. Entitlement is growing like a cancer, like a stage four cancer in our culture, and it's starting to gain a foothold in certain parts of the body. A young lady writing in her early 20s writes these words, my generation is notorious for our attitudes of entitlement. We think we deserve more than we do, and when we don't get it, our entitlement siren starts blaring. Our entitlement siren start, starts blaring. Entitlement is that belief that one is inherently deserving of privileges and special treatment, uh, tr uh, special treatment, like hierarchy. My wife hates hates one thing more than hierarchy. One thing more than hierarchy, and that's not having a designated parking bay at Common Ground. <laughs> guys, I couldn't even ask for that. Our guys will shoot me because we're, we're realizing the ground at the foot of the cross is level. And we don't want to project this sense of entitlement and special treatment. I've been doing some reading on the story of David who goes out, uh, uh, sends 10 of his uh, guys to go and see Nabal in the wilderness. He's throwing a party and he wants some food, and I'm just paraphrasing, and he says basically to Nabal's guys, he says, when we were among you shepherding, we didn't kill any of you, and we didn't steal any of your sheep. Now, we've got a feast coming, and this is your moment to give us some sheep and wine and all goods for our party. To which Nabal said, and who is David? And what does he think he deserves? The answer is, you're on, your run for, on the run from your master Saul. Get away. We're not interested in you. And David, when his servants come back, he instructs them to arm up. And he wants to take not 10 servants. He wants to take 400 servants. And he wants to go and take Nabal and that whole family out. And it's... it's uh, What's the lady's name? Abigail. Beautiful girl, wise, discerning woman. Uh, 
sends a delegation on ahead because she found out, one of her servants found out that what her husband had said to David and, uh, and comes with all this food and all this wine and everything. Question, why did David feel for some reason that he was entitled? There was a, when I was among you, I didn't kill your guys or take your food. Second question, why did David's own servants not warn him? Why did it take somebody else? Why, why did David's own servants not say to him, this is not going to go well? And it got me thinking, what about our leadership teams? Does it take somebody on the outside of our church to come and tell us we got some problems? Because we won't listen to the guys who are around us because we feel we're entitled and everybody buys into that narrative and makes the leader feel better than everybody else. Folk, we're in trouble when we start to make kings of leaders. And that entitlement followed David to the throne because at the time when kings go to war, he, didn't, he felt entitled to set Joab in his place. And when Job had gone and he looked down the balcony and he saw this woman having a bath or whatever it is, whatever she was doing, there's all kinds of theories on this, he felt entitled to have another man's wife until such time as he went down the slippery slope of one sin just created the next. Look, we've lost something of the vision of what Jesus modeled in this passage. All leadership is servanthood, and all servanthood is sacrificial love. Paul describes his ministry to this church as a drink offering being poured out on the sacrifice of the service of the saints. In Timothy, he says the same thing. My life has, has been a drink offering. Folk, the drink offering was a very simple accompanying offering that was designed to be poured out on the main offering, the main sacrifice. And the language he uses in the NIV, it's poured out on the service of the sacrifice of the saints. Folk, we are not in this to obligate the people we lead to our leadership, to our ministry. We are not here to monopolize ministry. We're here to mobilize it and maximize it in the lives and the riverbeds of others. We're to pour our lives out for the sake of others. And as we do that, the picture of the kind of leader they're following is the picture of something that emulates Jesus. It emulates the person we yoke to. The fragrant of, fragrance of Christ is on them. Francis Frangipani years ago said, the gospel begins with the name of Jesus on our lips, but is consummated with the nature of Jesus in our hearts. And to this, I add, to be heir to His blessings and not to his nature, is unbiblical. It's unbiblical. Third thing God is arresting is the drift away from accountability toward being self-seeking. <laughs> I keep coming back to that picture of David. I'm thinking, how much pain could have been spared if he had a team around him that could have approached him, but they were afraid of him. We see it playing out in some of the pain of the last two years in various leadership uh, environments. And so this word accountability is back on the table. And we're not 
wanting to find a system of accountability as much as we're wanting a heart of accountability. Because you can have systems that can easily be worked. And there's two kinds of accountability. It's the accountability that's required of you because you're in a team. And then there's the more noble, virtuous accountability that you're just hungry to give because you're in that team and you want people to know they can depend on you and there are no shadows in the way you're functioning in that team. David's men could fight for him, but they couldn't caution him. My heart is broken when I think of that, and I've seen that play out in various scenarios. People are following and cheering, but they will not grab a moment and confront. Question, are you allowing a culture of fear to creep in? Most of you are either on teams or leading teams and ministry teams and worship teams and deacon teams, whatever teams you're in, we need to make sure that uh, we're, we're not functioning under a culture of fear, but there's a culture of honesty and generosity and a culture of review. And I want to say to you, if you're leading a church, I'm saying in front of everybody so that they'll hold you accountable because it's not acceptable. It's just not acceptable that there are no external voices that we're inviting regularly to audit us, to review us, to encourage us, to, to have conversations around the big decisions like uh, particularly your own salary. I just hope I don't have to say that. I hope you're not involved in setting your own salary as a leader. Fourthly, God is arresting the drift from short-termism to long... To, uh, he's arresting the drift from, from, from a long obedience... He's arresting the drift from short-termism to a long obedience in the same direction. Okay. You should try. Put all these things together. It's difficult. <laughs> you see, selfish ambition rushes the timelines in our lives. And one of the things we've been talking to each other about is the need to just slow down things a little. Not be in a massive rush about everything. Carl Truman cites lessons from the building of the Cologne uh, Cathedral. Uh, has anybody been to Cologne? I've been there. I've seen this fantastic Gothic cathedral, masterpiece of architecture. And uh, it started in 1248, but it was only completed in 1880. 1880. It took 632 years to build. And part of that was because of the various wars in Europe, and there were significant delays. Uh, uh, but eventually it was completed in 1880. But here's one of the things that is just very, very true. The original architect and the first masons hewing the first stones knew they'd never see the building completed to enter through its magnificent doors and to worship in the grand splendor of its sanctuary. Imagine spending your life to build something, to put all the strength and energy of your gifts into something, and you'll never, ever see it. And yet, these masons considered the task worthwhile. All of the hard work, all the physical work involved was a small price to pay for constructing something that they themselves would never live to enjoy. Carl Truman says this, we're children of an age of instant gratification with reference to the deep and worthwhile things 
in life, as well as to the consumerist stuff with which we surround ourselves. It's worthwhile asking why that is. The answer is that men and women of the 13th century saw themselves and the world they inhabited as embedded in something much bigger, a cosmos that was in itself embedded in God and therefore had a meaning that transcended both the raw material from which it was made and the present moment of its existence. I'm making a case for anointed plodding. I'm making a case for let's do what we call to do for as long as it takes, and don't worry if you're not around to see the full flowering of your labor. They knew that the world in which they lived and were working was not about them, and they had obligations not simply to their own day and generation, but for generations to come. How many of you know that what we're doing right now in church, right now is decided what will happen for thousands and thousands of people who are beyond what we're doing in our We're laying the foundations. And so this final frontier, which I won't spend as much time on, relax. This is my case. One big point for that first all that list of what God's doing in reorientating inner life, just because God is using us and has used us to date does not mean that God is having His way with us. Just because God has used us to date does not mean. Don't use the success and fruitfulness of ministry to say, this is God's endorsement on the totality of the work of the gospel in my life. It needs to go deeper still the inner frontier of the heart, and it is the neglected one. But Paul doesn't pitch one or pit one frontier against another in this passage. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. Next three words, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Next two words, among whom, it's in the midst of and among whom, in this world, you shine like lights in the world. There is no beam me up Scotty out of the contested space in which we're called to live and do ministry. It's tough, it's hard, but it doesn't matter. Paul uh, launched his ministry into the soft underbelly of the Roman Empire in contested space, and the gospel flourished. Leslie Newbegin says, the gospel is the truth. That almost sounds like ludicrous. It sounds ridiculous when you say, this is the truth. And he says, the gospel is the truth, and therefore, it is true for all men. It is the unveiling of the face of Him who makes all things, from whom every man comes and to whom every man goes. It is the revealing of the meaning of human history of the origin and destiny of mankind. Jesus is not only my Savior, He is Lord of all things, the cause and cornerstone of the universe. If I believe, if I believe that, then to bear witness to that is the very stuff of existence. I think I can keep it to, if I think I can keep it to myself, then I do not have any real sense then I do not in any real sense believe it. Gospel missions are not an extra. They're the acid test of whether or not the church believes the gospel. The gospel is a robust power. The gospel can thrive in any 
environment. That's the story of church history. And Paul's own humbly onward journey is characterized by this underlying gospel in the confidence in the gospel's power. We see him in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, God, who caused the light to shine out of darkness, has caused his light to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Folk, the gospel Paul preached was a gospel he preached to Hebrews, whose quest was for light and illumination that resulted in moral codes of living. He preached the gospel to the Romans, and their quest was for glory and the city, and power, and domination. And into that empire, he preached the gospel. And he preached the gospel to the Greeks, whose quest was uh, 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 wisdom and, and knowledge. And folks, it's just too beautiful to see. Here's Paul, a Hebrew by birth, a, citizen, a Roman citizen by the sovereignty of God. And he's writing to a Greek city in Corinth, and that's why you could say, this light that shines in our hearts, which shines in our hearts, it can shine into any part of this world. It anticipates the contested spaces in which we live. And it can gain for Christ the reward of His suffering. Leslie Newbegin goes on to say, all true vitality in the work of missions depends in the last analysis upon the secret springs. He comes back to the inside of supernatural life, which they know who give time to communion with God. All true uh, witness to Christ is the overflow of a reality too great to be contained. It has its source in a life of adoration and intercession. Any real power that God gives, may, uh, may, gives them may come through those secret channels which are in this age, as in every age, the true means of blessing the world. Folk, he's talking about a, in, in our innermost being. There's some work. There's this river. It flows to the nations. It flows beyond us. But it has to renew us first. It has to refresh us. It has to transform us. And so as I land, six ways or five, six ways, I'm just going to read them in which uh, Leslie Newbegin says the gospel, uh, this outer frontier will be uh, uh, impacted by our kind of lives and our kind of churches. He says as the gospel gets into us, we, it, will, it will build communities of praise in a world of doubt and skepticism. We'll be marked by joy and song and louder songs. It will build communities of truth in a pluralistic age, a postmodern world that, that is overwhelmed and produces relativism. It will be a selfless community that does not live for itself, but is deeply involved in the concerns of the neighborhood in a really selfish world. It will be a community prepared to live out the gospel in public life. They don't seal off their faith from their work in a world that has told us to privatize our religious claims and convictions. It will be a community of mutual responsibility. We'll do stuff together. We'll stand shoulder to shoulder. Preacher Yersbeck said we'll learn to pray together, play together, and pay together. We do it together. And it will be a community of hope 
in a world of pessimism and despair about the future. And the reason it'll be all of that is because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. We celebrated this past Easter, and He is the risen Lord, perfect, glorious, able, over an imperfect body that He's deeply committed to and is transforming. Friends, when we started this movement a decade back, it was to plant and strengthen churches. We're not backing off that. What we're doing in this time is to say we just want to do it better going forward, and we want to do it humbly. We want to do it in a way that the outer life is connected to deeper work of God in our inner frontier. I wonder if you could join me as uh, we, we come to this, 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 this time of wanting to respond to God. Is there something stirring in you? Is there something that is a, a, a personal yes to the invitation of the Holy Spirit to intensify His work? Are we happy to come under His glorious good hand? Can we allow Him to work with us? That's what we've been doing in the last season with lots of difficulty and challenges, but there's also that deeper work that He's wanting to do in us. Folk, we are not going to go further unless there's a corresponding work. And if we do go further and there's not this corresponding deeper work, we're going to short-circuit the outflow and the fulfillment of God's vision in the world. Can I ask you to bow your heads with me? Lord, we are awed by the picture of the glorious head of the church. And Lord, we've been excited and adrenalized by this amazing trust and call to go to nations, to plant churches, and we want to continue to do that. Asking you, Lord, don't let us, please don't allow us to lag on that. But at the same time, we're saying, God, do that deeper work in us. Come and fully occupy our hearts. Come and break the power of drift on the inside. Come sanctify our inner motivations. But we're not choosing between frontiers. We're seeing the connection. We want to give you our yes. And I want to ask you, would you respond as we go to God tonight in deeper humility, in deeper dependence, Yes, there are doors that are going to open. Yes, there are Macedonian calls that are coming. But those who will discern those doors and those that will go through them, those that will get visions in the night, or those whose hearts are celebrating this consistent and eternal truth. We're working things out because God is at work within us. Both to will and to work His good pleasure in the midst of a very broken and crazy world.
Come and help us, Holy Spirit, to respond appropriately. We're so different in this room. We're at different phases and stages of ministry maturity and life and responsibility. But the one thing we all are in this room are followers of Jesus. To give us a fresh vision. To become a more mature version of that. For your glory and honor. Humbly onwards my brothers and sisters.